0: Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act.
1: We call this the Afterglow.
0: You know, Liz, lately I've enjoyed rolling out my yoga mat just to sit quietly and meditate or maybe move through a few sun salutations. I have to admit, I haven't really had a lot of time to complete full practices during COVID. But when I have, I've really loved using my new cork mat. I mean, I've always sworn by the rubber B mat, as you know, that it's the best, most grippiest mat on the market. But their new cork mat is so comfortable, and it makes me feel as though I'm really connected to the earth. And kind of connected to nature. Our friend Andrea over at B Yoga, she's worked so hard on ensuring the most natural of products and everything that she's designed. So, you know, listeners, if you want to learn more about this product and more about any of the products, you can check out beyoganow.com. That's B, just the letter B, yoganow.com, and see if there's anything that can serve you during this time. Welcome to the Afterglow. We have the honor and privilege today of welcoming Dr. Samantha Nutt.
1: Samantha Nutt is an award-winning humanitarian, best-selling author, and acclaimed public speaker. A medical doctor and the founder of War Child Canada and War Child USA, Dr. Nutt has worked with children and their families at the front line of many of the world's major crises. From Iraq to Afghanistan, Somalia to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Sierra Leone to Darfur, Sudan. She's a leading authority on current affairs, conflict, international aid, and foreign policy, and has been appointed to the Order of Canada for her contributions improving the plight of young people in the world's worst conflict zones. She's a staff physician at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, as well as the recipient of numerous honorary doctorates from universities in Canada and the USA. Recently, Dr. Nutt has been leading an emergency coalition of over 250 charities asking the Government of Canada for urgent financial support during COVID-19. Dr. Samantha Nutt, you have more than earned your badass woman title from InStyle magazine. We are so honoured to have you here. Welcome to the Afterglow.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it. Wow. We're so thrilled. We're actually, I mean, we're in total
0: awe of you. When we hear your bio, it's its so hard to believe that this is from one person. One person. <laughs> I, had,
2: I, had, I had to cut a lot of stuff out actually to fit onto the uh, well, podcast. <laughs> My yeah, my my clone's very tired, but I'm I'm actually fine. No, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know whether I don't think you should be impressed. I mean, it's not as if these things happened quickly. It was uh, over over many decades. When I listen to the bio, I just feel old, frankly. But um, but I do appreciate the introduction that was very very generous.
0: Well, we're we're questioning our own education and contribution and knowledge of what's going on in the world right now. So we're so glad to have you to help us and educate us. I mean, you've witnessed and experienced incredible devastation, not only as a doctor, but as an authority on war. So let's just start with War Child. Can you tell us what is War Child?
2: So War Child is an international humanitarian organization, and we work with children on the front lines of many of the world's uh, most difficult circumstances, providing long-term solutions that enable children and their families to rebuild their lives and to survive the the, the terrible circumstances that they find themselves in. So we we aren't a, a short-term emergency organization, so we don't provide um, things like food, water, shelter, blankets that, that many short-term agencies do. We really take a long-term view of the problem of war, and our programs focus on education, making sure that kids have the opportunity to um, to complete their education and and you know build uh, meaningful lives for themselves and, and future generations. we focus on um, on economic sustainability, so skills training, livelihoods work especially for women and young people. Uh, for young people it 's important to keep them out of militia groups, so having an earned income is critically important and Then the third part of what we do is access to justice. so we do a lot of work um, in defense of women and children whose rights are being violated throughout the world through a combination of legal aid programming and uh, and advocacy initiatives, uh, particularly in environments where those rights are being threatened every single day so that gives you a sense of the scope of our work, but essentially. All of these programming activities are are integrated, and we're trying to create and foster uh, protective, safe environments for children, primarily throughout the world. Um, also, uh, also women, because they're important drivers of, of children's health and well-being, and um, and we're doing it in environments where you know the the, the circumstances that they're facing are 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 um, are really really challenging. But we're able to achieve great results, and we're very proud of those efforts.
1: One of the things we're learning right now is how interconnected we are, right? A person with a virus in China can affect all of us. And so why should, you, why should we care with so much going on right now here with coronavirus? Why should we care about what's going on over there in countries of the global south?
2: I, I think that's an important question, and that's one that, frankly, I get asked uh, a lot because, especially right now, we we do have uh, very real issues happening here at home, and there is a tendency when we're faced with these kinds of of threats to to, to really become more and more insular. And in and in this case, we're doing that um, both uh, you know metaphorically and and literally in the sense that we're all um, bunkered down in our homes and. And so the the our, our the needs and the pressures feel feel very personal and very immediate for for everyone. But the truth is, and, and you mentioned this yourself, that um, what we have learned, for example, from this virus is that is that threats like these, when they exist anywhere in the world, um, they threaten all of us. And so our collective response is incredibly important. Many of the environments in which Warshaw is working throughout the world um, now that the virus is is finding a foothold there the circumstances that people are facing are even more dire. We're talking about parts of the world where there is no PPE, there is very limited access to health care, um, where even uh, things like basic sanitation supplies, you know, here we're in a scramble to find, to get, hand sanitizer and soap. But imagine how difficult it is, even if you're able to get soap, if you can't have access to to water, which is what um, we're confronting in, in some parts of the world, including in places like Sudan and South Sudan, where food is very hard to come by and where disruptions to the food supply because of COVID are really amplifying the threat of malnutrition and famine. So we know and understand that this virus affects us all. But in the global South, um, and, and people who are living with war and living with poverty, the impact of this virus, the scale of it will be even uh, more significant and more disastrous. And that's on top of uh, very, very difficult, very challenging situations to, to begin with and, and the ongoing risk of, of violence. So um, so I think this is a really important time as we all deal with um, uncertainty and, and fear um, to remember that we we really are in this together, and that that compassion that altruism shouldn't stop at our borders um, because we we really uh the only way we will get through this is if we if we reduce and hopefully eliminate this virus everywhere in the world.
0: I completely agree with that, and it is so easy for us to just be uh you know on our own social media picking who we want to look at and what we see and paying attention to our own children and the problems we're dealing on a daily basis with them rather than like looking outside and seeing the global scale of this and how important it is to be reaching out. I'm curious about where this all started for you, because you before War Child, before creating War Child, you were a war doctor. And, you know, before that, you were obviously, you know, a young teenage girl growing up, where does this sort of humanitarian side come in for you? Where did this start for you?
2: That's always hard to answer, because I don't think it's something that um, happens overnight. When I look at the trajectory of my life, I think that it was, um, I arrived at this place kind of incrementally, I'm Look, I'm 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 short. I'm by nature pretty scrappy. I have a ridiculous last name, so uh, grade school was really fun for me in so many ways. And so I think that I have I have always um, really from a very early age identified with, with the underdog and with um, with with those who are 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 facing. Um, you know adversity, and and then I think as I as I got older, that sort of that that pivoted into an interest in in human rights, and I marched against apartheid in the in the 80s, for example, um, and was very involved in human rights groups on that front, um, particularly in, in later high school and also into early university, um, that I, I spent some time overseas as a child uh, because of the nature of uh, the work that my father had um, as an artist and as a, as a shoe designer. And I think that exposed me to the, to the broader global community. Um, but principally for me, when I made the decision to pursue a degree in public health, and that opportunity led me to Somalia, working for UNICEF during the famine in the early 1990s. That was the first time I had ever been exposed to war. And and I think that it was that experience more than than anything else that, that psychically um, changed my view of the world. It changed my understanding of war and violence. And it also led to some deep-seated frustrations with the way that we were as a global community, responding to those challenges and the sort of short-term interventions that we prioritize while never, ever addressing the root causes of that violence and that insecurity in the form of, um, you know, a lack of access to education, lack of access to earned income, uh, poor uh, democratic development, low low levels of governance, um, corrupt governments, that kind of thing. And how do you how do you strengthen what uh, what exists in civil society? Um, how do you how do you create better conditions in which future generations can survive and thrive? And so, getting to the heart of that was what ultimately led to the creation of War Child Canada. But again, it wasn't something where I just woke up one day and said, "Oh, I'm going to be a war doctor," and "Oh, I'm going to start an NGO." It was a it was a culmination of experiences. Um, both good and bad, uh, failures, uh, you know, in, in, in many respects and, and trying to find a better model because I was increasingly convinced that, that many of the models that we were putting into place were, were broken in some critically in, in some important ways.
1: Samantha, if I could poke around a little bit here, um, the purpose of our podcast, one of the things that Julie and I really care about most passionately is helping women overcome a societal conditioning that, um, you know, makes us feel powerless, and I know we're coming out of that. Especially with younger generations, there's initiatives to to help you know teach women that they can lead. But for those of us in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, we weren't born with, with that messaging, and so you know, you talk about Somalia being um, a, a pivotal time for you uh, when your mindset changed around war. But we also went digging through a podcast you did recently and heard that in your 20s, also around that time, there was a part of you that was perhaps wrestling with doubt, right? So a part of you very inspired to change the world. And then a part of you who um, having a harder time expressing your voice, leaving voicemail messages, things like that. And so we're just curious because we're so passionate about helping women to overcome their doubt. How did you overcome that self doubt? And what can you share? um, What would you say to women who are currently finding themselves giving into doubt?
2: Um, yeah, and that's I think that's a really great question, and and I should I should be careful with how I answer this in the sense that like I'm you know a certain amount of self doubt of like of reality checking is I think important, and um, you know I look at some of the leaders that we have in the world right now, uh, you know Donald Trump comes to mind. I think well no, there's a guy who really should be doubting whatever comes out of his mouth, yes. but it doesn't yeah. seem to be much of an impediment. So so but I do believe that it's about um, you know, making sure that we're not self-silencing, and 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 for me that that was a huge challenge. And and I mentioned already, I was I was small and scrappy, and um and I also had a fairly high voice when I was younger. Um, and as and as girls, so so often we hear that you that you that you should be quiet, that um that nobody wants a loud, opinionated, obnoxious, or at least we associate. Uh, opinionated women and girls with, uh, being, with being obnoxious or being difficult and, and all this kind of stuff. And so we, you know, we were socially conditioned um, throughout the course of our lives to, to believe that, that if we are forceful or if we are aggressive or we are opinionated, that these things are um, unbecoming and unattractive. And those are the kinds of nasty labels that I think um, uh, silence us. And, and it's a trap, and many of us, I think, don't ever climb out of that, and you gave the example of a voicemail, because I had a, a higher voice, um, whenever I would raise my hand in class, it, uh, I was quickly shut down, with usually boys in the class, who would, who would start going, oh, you know, squeak, 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 there she goes again, and, and so I became very self-conscious about that, and in my early 20s, if I had to Call someone, no matter what it was, uh, somebody that I didn't know, and leave a voicemail message asking them to call me back. Even if it was something important, like a like a scholarship opportunity or or anything like that, I would panic and hang up at the at the at the beep. And and it took a and, and I and I know it was going through my head at that time. I kept thinking to myself, well, what if I, what if I sound dumb or I say something that I can't erase or what if my voice is too high? And and I think that um, you know, going to Somalia changed that because it 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 forced me to confront those insecurities and those fears because I had I had seen and witnessed atrocities that I could not escape. And um and in in as much as I came back and those that experience angered me some of what I saw and the abuses that I saw and the threats that even I personally received angered me Um, I also recognized that if I wasn't going to speak up about what I had personally seen, no one else was going to do that for me. And so slowly, incrementally, I just started to become more vocal and I stopped self-censoring. And I started, and I think age helps with this, I started to um, to not care quite as much about what other people think of me and, and to recognize, um, or to find, to tap into that confidence. But it, it does. It, it, it takes time. It takes time to, to break the patterns of the past and the, the voices in our heads that tell us that we're not good enough, or or smart enough, or um, or you know, or, or or any other reason why um, so so many of us are afraid to to put our ideas and and opinions on the line. And I hope, in a way, that that even for me, being out there as a, as a speaker and um, and a writer and that kind of thing, that it that it encourages other young women and girls to to use their voices and and to not be afraid.
0: I can totally relate to that. I'm 47 years old, and I'm still trying to um, wrestle, grapple, come to terms with the fact that I don't need to care about what everybody thinks about me. So I totally relate to that. And
1: Um, and and if I could just add, it's so helpful to hear uh, a woman who's powerful, right, who's creating impact and change in this world, and to hear that she has also that you have also wrestled with doubt, right? And so it's kind of a reminder to all of us that It's normal to have the doubt and just find something you care enough about to overcome it.
2: Well, that's true. And I also think that um, we we worry a lot and I have worried a lot. You know, you worry about putting something out there and being wrong or sounding foolish or sounding stupid. And then I think to myself, you know, men do and say stupid things. All the time, without apology, without regret, without regret. If that weren't the case, we 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 wouldn't have Donald Trump and Bolsonaro and other uh, you know populist leaders throughout the world. So, um, so by self censoring, uh, we create more space for them to to mm-hmm. occupy and to set the agenda mm-hmm. and and that's wrong and so wrong. um Not
1: good. <laughs> you know
2: we you know and that's why we do need more of us being vocal and so what if we say something stupid so what if somebody contradicts us so what if we end up being being wrong. Um, the, the point is that we, we need to start taking those risks because when more women are speaking up and speaking out, um, then our voices will be heard. And, and I think that that, um, that, that to me has, I mean, it, it, that, that to me now is, is more important than the risk of making a mistake.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that that, Um, is part of or was part of your motivation to, you know, become a doctor, pursue kind of what would be unthinkable to most to be a war doctor. Do you think you were, because of this and because of, you know, your small stature, your high voice, were you kind of on a trajectory of, of must do and must accomplish and trying to prove
2: yourself? I think so. I think that, look, we, we, especially when you, um, you know, and I grew up in a very middle-class suburban um, Canadian household and, and my parents certainly struggled at various points in time to, um, you know, to, to to earn their income and to provide for the family and, and everything else. Um, and so I do think that, and I, and on top of that, um, you know, we're a first generation family. My, my parents were immigrants to Canada. And, and I think that that, puts a lot of pressure on the children especially to to achieve and to perform and and to do that in very very narrow ways um and and and, you know to your point like I think when I was younger I I jumped through so many hoops I probably could have been a circus act but the um in terms of degrees and qualifications and everything else because you feel as if by acquiring these Things um, Stephen Lewis has a has a great word for it that he uses in jest, but I, it's true. He calls it titular self-aggrandizement. <laughs> um, that, that, that suddenly, you know, you get this degree that's conferred upon you, or this other honor, honor that's bestowed upon you, um, that you will be credible and you will be treated taken seriously, and and that you'll finally have be seen as an expert and an authority because if you. If you look young, or you're female, or you have a high voice, you know people don't take you as seriously. So I I do think that that there was uh, a, an element of that in um, in why I spent so many years in school. But then again, uh, it, it's also that I am really a giant nerd. And, uh, I I really did like school and I really did like, uh, do like reading. And, um, if I could be a professional student the rest of my life, I'd probably be a very happy woman. But, um, but I do, I do think, yeah, we have to, we, we have to eventually get to a place where we're comfortable with, with who we are and need to stop seeking that external validation. And I suppose if you look at my bio, you could determine that it took me a lot longer to make that realization than most people. <laughs> um, but I'm, um, you know, I'm certainly comfortable with uh, with who I am now, and I'm I'm not afraid to take people on. Although I do still see, even in 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 media debates and discussions, um, there is a reticence or a greater reticence to. Um, to treat women and call women and declare women experts in their field compared to what we see among men. And I think, again, that is something that we have to work very hard to change. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, all that prep work you've done is is certainly leading up to a lot of good. Um, And you see so much uh, in terms of suffering and death and violence. Um, And how do you hang on to hope, we would love it if you could share a story of resiliency uh, in the midst of war and devastation and destruction. Is there something that you've seen that you could share that is perhaps an inspiring story of hope and positivity, even in the greatest moments of suffering?
2: Absolutely. You know, I'm so privileged in that I, um, I work with people every day who are on the front lines of some of the most unimaginable horrors in this world and who are working with women and children who are accomplishing tremendous things against enormous odds. So. We have, for example, children in our distance-based radio learning program right now in Eastern Congo. And this is uh, an example of how this pandemic, how we've been able to, as an organization, respond to this pandemic and and augment our programming to meet the needs that children have as a result of this. And so this is what what started as a small pilot-based program In the eastern Congo in areas where girls were being subjected to incredibly high rates of physical and sexual violence. This is a conflict that's been raging for more than uh, for close to 20 years now and it's been incredibly brutal but sexual violence has also been widespread and what was happening in areas where there was uh, a lot of conflict going on, families were keeping their girls home from school because even to walk the at the couple of kilometers that they would need to to get to school came with a tremendous risk of of sexual violence. And if they weren't keeping them home from school and keeping them doing menial tasks, they were in some cases forcing them into early child marriages because the stigma of sexual violence was was so significant that they wanted to um, see their girls married off before, before they incurred that risk. So a couple of years ago, we started this pilot program using radio, which is a cheap and easy and widely available technology in that part of the world whereas other technologies are not, to um, basically feed lessons into those communities where girls were at high risk and were being held back with support from local teaching assistants, whom we also trained and after about 18 months of that program, we found that our matriculation rates, our graduation rates for the girls that had participated, the whole community is allowed to participate, but it was really targeting the girls, um, were in excess of 85%, which is well above the national average. So these were girls in, in war zones who were not getting access to school with the basic radio and self-directed technology, uh, self-directed opportunity, were, were able to then Complete their studies and continue on and 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 graduate. We, as a result of COVID nineteen, have been asked because so many kids now are being held back from school because of the pandemic in other parts of the country to roll that out as part of a national strategy to provide education to thousands upon thousands of Congolese children and to ensure that their education is not is not disrupted. And so there is an example of um, of some of like in- incredible work that that we're doing that that gives me hope because, um, I just see the, the, the ways in which our, our staff and the kids in our programming are, are benefiting, um, despite the tremendous odds, despite the barriers, despite the hardships, despite the threat of COVID-19, and are still able to, to, um, create better opportunities for themselves and for their families. And, and, you know, I could give you a dozens and dozens of individual stories too that that capture that. Women who were begging on the streets who are now uh, running their own businesses uh, in Afghanistan, who have even pivoted those businesses to make masks and PPE that they're now selling and that they're um, able to turn uh, in, into revenue for themselves and for their children. And it's just, it's, it's hugely inspiring. It's hugely inspiring every day. But it doesn't mean there aren't major setbacks. It doesn't mean that we're not confronting horrific regimes throughout the world um, who clamp down uh, and who commit atrocities and abuse, even on the people that we're we're trying to help and support. Um, But the courage and the determination, um, really, of, of our staff and the people that participate in our programs give me hope every single day.
0: I'm going to take a bit of a feminist slant here, and I know you, you you touched on it a tiny bit, but do you think that the state of the world, like the constant war scene, the unfathomable access to arms is due to a lack of feminine leadership or feminine qualities aren't valued in society?
2: I do think so. And I think even if you look at the COVID-19 pandemic and you look at those countries that have um, fared a lot better as a result, they're countries that have had uh, that have female leaders. If you look at uh, New Zealand, for example, if you look at Finland, um, Germany, too. You know, some great lessons from coming out of Germany with Angela Merkel. I think that um, there is, I, I think, a diversity of perspective uh, at, at all levels of government, but especially in leadership positions, is is incredibly important. And and all forms of diversity diversity, gender diversity, racial, cultural. Um, the more that we can bring to uh, our decision making around uh, everything from from conflicts to arms transfers to uh, foreign policy to public policy to how we respond to 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 pandemics to what gets prioritized, you know, um, national pharmacare, for example, universal health care, all of these questions. I think that, when you have women's voices at the table, we don't all speak with the same voice, but I think having that, um, that level of inclusion and equality um, and, and diversity of perspective, I think ultimately that tends to get us to um, a better and, and safer place throughout the world. And, and I think that the evidence backs that up as well. You have
1: said that we should big tent our feminism Uh, that the biggest threat to women and girls are in war zones and refugee camps. Uh, And I know for myself, uh, this is new for me to take on this broader perspective. A lot of times I've just been thinking about what's happening in in here in Canada with my own daughter. So why should we think about not just the women's issues happening here, but the women's issues happening abroad?
2: Because um, I think as, as women that understanding the the real threats that exist to us throughout the world um, and expressing support and solidarity for women who are facing um, extraordinary barriers, barriers that uh, in many instances, we haven't faced in in this part of the world, but that our great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers faced, I think that that's really, really important. And we understand as well, even if you look throughout the world, when you strengthen the rights of women, um, when you strengthen educational opportunities for women and girls, you build uh, safer societies, you reduce maternal, infant, and child mortality, you reduce fertility rates, uh, which also improves quality of life throughout the world. And so by investing in and strengthening women, Everywhere in the world, um, we're building and promoting better societies, and and that benefits all of us. Um, we certainly will all, in the future, be um, be in a much better place when we have, um, you know, more women who are able to realize their rights throughout the world, who are able to participate in the economy, participate in uh, in in government, and be at the table taking. Uh, critical, critical decisions. You
1: know, as you're speaking, I'm just in my, the back of my mind, I'm just hearing we've closed our borders, but let's not close our hearts to what's happening overseas.
2: No, I think that's a great way of framing it. Yeah, we shouldn't. We we need to, we need to remember, especially right now, that um, it's hard. It, it It is hard and it's hard for all of us here. And And those challenges are amplified in parts of the world where people are living on top of one another in tents have experienced tremendous violence, um, are at risk of other infectious and communicable diseases at the same time are under threat of, of gunfire, other forms of abuse. Um, you know, we, we just need to, I think, especially at this moment, understand that, um, that the needs are, are tremendous and we have to, we have to look after each other and, and our compassion, um, shouldn't be narrow. We we do absolutely have real needs here at home. We have real needs in other parts of the world. And it's not an either or we are capable of doing both at the same time.
0: So, so people are busy, you know, we're all dealing with this COVID. We don't like to feel bad things, right? And I think that some of these issues are kind of overwhelming to some of us, like war, famine, and sexual violence, now COVID on top of that. So what do you say to people who are either not paying attention um, or not doing anything because they're not sure how to help? How can we help?
2: Well, one of the ways that anyone can help at this moment in time, and I think especially for women who are interested in um, in supporting some of these issues, is is to give. You know, there are um, women's shelters and uh, groups that support uh, survivors of of domestic violence. They're overwhelmed right now here in Canada. So that's one of the ways that you can contribute. And you mentioned at the start of our conversation that, Um, We helped to spearhead a coalition of 250 charitable organizations, making an appeal for additional support to help respond in the wake of COVID. Obviously, everybody's facing an economic crunch right now, or most of us are facing an economic crunch right now. But if you do have the means and the resources even to give a little bit or to contact some of these groups and find out if you can even volunteer during this period of time, that's one way that you can help. But it's also important to to remember that um, that again, you know, you can give locally and internationally at the same time. Uh, anybody who's interested in supporting War Child Canada or War Child USA, you can certainly visit our website, which is warchild.ca uh, or warchildusa.org, and we would be more than happy to to talk to you about how you could contribute um, financially and in other ways to to our efforts. So I just think, you know, it is a lot of bad news right now. But one of the things that I I, I think can uplift all of us is the act of of giving back and and many people are out celebrating our healthcare providers and and banging pots and doing those kinds of things and this is just a further extension of of our expression of of compassion and care um, and the feeling of of unity and and through through helping those who really need it and and there are many women and children throughout the world. Uh, who who do need that support. So if you can give, you will you'll, you'll feel better about having done that.
1: It's our, it's our tendency to underestimate the impact we can have. And one of the things I've learned or I'm learning through COVID is just that all of us have a role to play, right? Social distancing only works if all of us jump in and do it. And I think it's a framework that we can apply to this, that you know, small efforts multiplied by many, they really do add up. One of the things we like to ask our podcast guests is um, about their afterglow. And it's basically their vision uh, for the next 40, 50 years. uh, What, you know, what's, what are you working towards? What's your afterglow?
2: Hmm. Um, Well, I mean, I wouldn't get up and do what I do every day if I didn't believe that an end to war is possible. And for some people that may sound uh, hopeless and naive, but I do believe that by strengthening education, strengthening the rights of women, having more women participating in government and in civil society, occupying those leadership roles, that we can make different choices and that we can move the dial in favor of peace. And um, and so I guess that would that that would be my afterglow. But also as a doctor, and especially going through COVID right now. I think the one thing we take for granted but need to remember uh, is how to be decent towards one another and support one another and, and continue to show uh, kindness and compassion um, because we're not going to get through this if we're just constantly building walls, building barriers, blaming others. Um, we, we need to understand that, uh, that as human beings, the, the most important thing we can do right now is support one another.
0: I I think that, um, that's one of the, the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves is that act of service, right? Is is the giving back. And so, and so when we do that, we replenish our own spirits, we replenish our own souls. I'm wondering about how you replenish yourself, you've seen so much, you've done so much. I mean, I would be just I'm tired, thinking about how many things you have done. And and how do you come out of it without, you know, the experience of PTSD or trauma? What do you do to replenish yourself to revive yourself so that you do get up the next day and go back to what you do?
2: To be honest, there there have been times when I found that personally very challenging coming out of Somalia, but also um, in 2004 we had a pretty close call in the eastern Congo. I've had a few of my friends who have uh, unfortunately lost their lives in the course of um, providing humanitarian assistance in different conflict zones, but especially especially in Iraq. And so I'm not going to suggest that there haven't been over the last 25 years that I've been doing this work. Uh, there have been some some darker days, but I t- for for me I find um, you know my husband Eric Hoskins he was also uh, had also worked in war zones for many years and and worked with me and so within our home I have good support and uh, great understanding and knowledge of what I do and and why I do it I have an office full of tremendously capable brilliant funny, um, wonderful human beings here in Toronto who are very close to these issues and understand and and we support one another at moments when it can be a bit bit challenging and and difficult. Um, But also to know when you need to disengage a little bit, right? That's been very, very important to me. When you're feeling... Um, really burnt out and uh, really stressed and and not in the right frame of mind, that's not when you should be taking a decision to get on a plane and go to another war zone. Although right now, none of us are getting on planes, but um, that that's when I've taken the time to, to step back, to focus on different aspects of what we're doing, to, to fundraise, to do public advocacy, to write. I, I wrote a book um, came out a few years ago and it was just re-released uh, yeah, about a, a year, a bit ago, I'm working on my second book. So writing has been a really constructive outlet for me. And just being around friends and family and, and and decompressing. It's amazing to me that when you are in these really intense, scary situations and are not sure whether you're going to make it through to see another day, um, family and friendship and just being with the people that you love most in this world takes on um takes on a, 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 like a new, a new meaning and it becomes a massive priority. So I'm, I, you know, there's nothing that replenishes me more than uh, being up North. We have a little cabin on a no motor Lake near Halliburton, Ontario, and being around family and friends and enjoying a glass of wine and going for a, going for a paddle and listening to the loon and loon call. um, That to me is is those are the those are the richest moments in life, and I I cherish every opportunity that I have to do something like that.
1: Warchild is doing very serious work, but there's also some fun to it, right? You get to hang out with a few rock stars, and uh, so what do you do to, just to have fun when you're not working? What do you do to have fun? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I mean, I do have I have uh, I have wonderful friends, and I like to en- enjoy wine um, when you know, when I can. Um, again, I like to go, I like to go up North. I like to be in a serene, uh, wonderful, natural Ontario, Canadian, Canadian shield environment. Uh, that's always makes me very, very happy. I have a son who just turned 15 and, um, and, uh, you know, love spending time with him, love to read. I, I knit now as well. Um, which is nice too, because it's just kind of, it's very mindful and meditative and, sort of connects me with what I'm doing. And it also is a wonderful expression of affection for people. When you give them something that's handmade like that, I I get a lot of joy out of that. So, so for me, it's just, um, you, you know, it's just not, it's trying not to make things too complicated and, and, uh, and just being very, um, uh, very relaxed and very present. And, and that's, that's the part that I enjoy, but I, I do, I, I we laugh a lot. I laugh a lot with my friends and um, laugh a lot with some of our, my colleagues at the office. And so having a sense of humor is, 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 is really important. And I try to do that in everything that I do.
1: And you like fashion I've heard as well.
2: Well, I do. I have an. I have. I have a, a thing for like really cool boots. So <laughs> that's my. That's my Achilles heel. But you know, it's funny. My dad was um was a designer, like a shoe designer and uh, and an artist and was really into fashion. And he passed away in early two thousand and, um, and eighteen, unfortunately. But he um so our house was always full of like fashion trends and fashion magazines and everything else and so I think that I have developed a love of um of fashion through him I'm not that's not to suggest that I'm the most fashionable person on the planet because I'm I'm definitely not that but I do really appreciate people who have a great sense of style and I love um, local designers and local boutiques and always try, if I can, to, to support them in, in, in what they're doing and support their businesses, which I think is really important during COVID, COVID too. You know, there are a lot of um, the designers and small stores, small retail stores that I, that I like um, and I've called them up and made sure that I continue to support them because I think that that, um, that brings joy. It brings joy to all of us and making sure that they're supported and that they're going to get through this is, is important too, right?
0: You mentioned your son is fifteen years old. I have a daughter who's fifteen, um, so I can kind of relate to that time frame, that age. We like to ask what you would say to your fifteen-year-old self. So, what what would you say, looking back to your fifteen-year-old
2: self? Hmm, that's an excellent question. I think I would say to her, um, "You you may not think you're brave, but you are, and you may not think you can do it, but you will." And so, um, don't let other people tell you what you're capable of because you, you won't know until you try. And, and I think that that, um, that would probably be the most important message that I needed to hear at that moment in time, because it was it's a period in your life where you really do allow others to define you whether it's your uh, and tell you what they think you should do and what you're capable of, whether it's parents or teachers or your peer groups um, or even strangers, everybody's measuring you and assessing you and telling you what you're going to be and what you should do and where you're going to go. And in my life, all of those things proved to be totally incorrect and, I ended up um, charting my own path and doing things that probably most people who knew me back then would never have presumed I was um, capable of. And and also it was a time in my life to, it, it's funny because I look at the report cards my kid gets now and they're, everything is is very delicate and sensitive and framed in these like, um, very sort of loose noncommittal terms. But, uh, you know, in the eighties, when you got a high, when you got a report card, people were pretty blunt and I had a few of them that said, what had one, one teacher that said, Samantha is totally incapable of understanding physics. <laughs> so, you know, that, another one said that I'm a disruptive force in a sound environment. So, um, the, you know, these are the kinds of, uh, of, of Things that were put in front of me, um, and I guess in an effort to sort of tell me what they thought I was, and and uh, looking back, I I'm not I wasn't any of those things, and and I did take physics in university, and frankly, I did very well, um, and so I would love an opportunity to go back and tell that 15 year old girl that that she can do it, um, and any 15 year old girl, frankly, that 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 she can do it because um, she's she's capable of of amazing things.
1: We should go back and tell that teacher, too.
2: <laughs> send, him, send him a <laughs> oh, memo. Me. I took a photocopy of my second year physics mark at university and sent it to her. So. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Um, yeah, for you. you know. We, but
1: <laughs> we are drawing so much inspiration from, from you um, in terms of taking, you know, just expanding our perspective, thinking a bit more about what's happening outside our homes, outside our country. And who inspires you?
2: Hmm. You know what, I'm so privileged to have um, amazing women in my life, uh, girlfriends, and, and then also, like I said to you, some of the women who uh, run our programs, who work on our programs at War Child, um, and, you know, they inspire me every day, women leaders, women entrepreneurs. Um, women who are building things and running things and writing things um, I you know I 'm also a massive, nerdy Margaret Atwood fan, and she just lives a couple of blocks over so just even being in the presence of Margaret Atwood is a massive inspiration for me um, probably probably freaks her out a little bit that so i 'm sort of creeping around like wondering what she's up to but um you know there's there's there are some examples of uh, I just really love and admire. Ballsy, dynamic, um, strong, opinionated, funny, smart women. That any any anyone who's in my circle, um, they're usually a combination of those things, and they inspire me every day.
0: Is there anything else that you could say or share to our listeners, to the women out there? Um, we have some men, I'm sure, too. But um, just about um, you know, words of encouragement or advice that you might give for them. Like I said, or like Liz mentioned, in their you know 30s, 40s, 50s, um, not just coming right out of university to go forward, to follow their afterglow, to you know follow their passions.
2: Yeah, I think I would I would say to any of those women that um, it, tap into to your voice, um, understand what matters to you, the issues that you care about. Uh, the things that you're knowledgeable uh, around, and and really speak up and share those experiences, and encourage other women to do the same, and celebrate those women, even the ones that you may disagree with, who are are putting themselves out there and who are um, achieving a level of, of of influence and achieving change. I think that that's really really important, but. I also believe right now as we go through COVID, it's, it's tough. It's, it, it is, it, it, we are, this is a really tough situation and many of us find ourselves trapped at home and falling into the just business of like keeping the lights on and making sure we have clothes to wear and, and, and everything else. Um, and it's tough and it can feel mundane and it can feel isolating and frustrating And so just reach out to the women in your circle and tell them, let them know how much you care about them, how much you support them. Ask them to go for a socially distanced walk. It's amazing how just those kind of small interactions can really, I think, lift someone's spirits and and help them understand that we will get through this. You know, these are trying times, but we can get through this uh, if we care for one another. I'm just
1: settling into an image of a world without war and a world of unsilenced women. And I think uh, that's, that's a world worth fighting for. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Samantha Nutt, for being on this podcast with us. We appreciated everything you had to say.
2: Thank you for inviting me. Honestly, it was a real privilege to talk to you. And I look forward to hearing from some of the people that listen to your podcast and hopefully uh, encouraging them to be even louder than they are. Can you tell us where we can find you? Yes, well, I'm on Instagram, uh, and I like should think is how you found me, which is uh, Dr. Sam Nutt, and uh, also through War Child. You can contact us through, contact me through the War Child website, which is warchild.ca. I'm on Twitter. I'm not as much of a Twitter user, although you certainly can drop me a message on Twitter, and I will I will see it eventually, but it's definitely faster to get a hold of me through Instagram. I check Twitter less often because it tends to be a slightly more hostile platform, and, uh, really and especially is. during covid I mean, mean, especially during COVID. I don't, I don't need strangers yelling at me. I got, I got other people who could do that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much and good luck
2: with everything.
1: That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow podcast official and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.